0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I am joined as usual by my colleagues, Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey, everyone. Okay, we've got a bunch of interesting stories today, and at some point... I might tell a story about a certain experience that I had that affected my thinking and energy, but we'll start with your stories, and then if I'm so inclined, I'll I'll probably tell that story at some point. So Don, what's the first story you want to cover today?
0: Well, we talked a few weeks or possibly months now about the um, California Electric Utility PG&E and the responsibility that they had for the California wildfires, as well as the responsibility that bad policy in California had for the wildfires. But PG&E has announced that it has a new plan for avoiding wildfires, which is purposefully to black out as much as an eighth of California's population for as much as five days whenever there's dangerously high winds. And the I mean, the impact of that is not theoretical. Like they've actually had to cut power to communities in the past. And um, this happened a while back in Napa Valley in a town called uh, Calistoga for two days. And you had a lot of problems with elderly residents, people who had medical devices that relied on electricity, grocers whose food would spoil businesses that lost business. The Wall Street Journal had an article about this. And there was one small business owner who just from those two days lost $15,000. And the and, and according to PG&E, basically, they're going to fix this problem, but it's going to take about five years or longer in order to not have to rely on blackouts. And I mean, if you really cared about human flourishing, your priority would be to make sure that people had access to safe, reliable power. But here you have a state of California, which in the midst of a situation in which citizens are being told that they could just lose power in order to protect against wildfires, they're instead focused on making energy more expensive and less reliable. In fact, another story that we probably won't get into this week, but in LA, uh, you know, the city is basically going to have their own Green New Deal that's going to be even more aggressive than California's already commitment to 100% uh, CO2 free energy. So it's just this strikes me as reflecting really bad priorities and I am very happy that I no longer live in California.
1: Okay, well, I I do live in California. So yeah, thinking about it so would they say 8% of Californians? Okay, so there are 40 million Californians, so that's No, up
0: to an eighth
1: up to an eighth rather. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I actually did that calculation properly. I just said 8% instead of an eighth. Right. So there are 40 million Californians. So an eighth is about five, five million, which is a significant portion of the United States. And yeah, just thinking about five day blackout, what that would mean. I mean, what, what that would mean to me personally, what would that, what, you know, and what, what that means on a, on any kind of Significant scale. So this is the kind of thing that that this actually scares me in a way that when people say, "Oh yeah, there might be storms or something like that," it's not nearly as scary. Because so, this is this is really just completely castrating the human environment that we enjoy. So I'm going to think about how to get h- how to somehow push back on this. And why? Do you have any sense of of to what extent they're just focusing on preventing wildfires, or, or even preventing their own appearance of responsibility at all costs? Because this is a truly drastic kind of measure.
0: Um, no, I think that's a really good question, and part of what I haven't been able to find out yet is, like, I mean, because these are regulated utilities, right? Like, if you if this was any free, com- free market company uh, you know, if Facebook said, Hey, we're just going to shut down for our customers from time to time to solve some problems, they would probably face a lot of competition, but this is a very regulated industry. And so part of what I'm interested in is what do the regulators think of this plan? And that I have not heard, uh, so far because you could imagine that this is an attempt to, uh, in effect, a threat to try to get regulators to, um, allow PG&E to take a different approach, but that's not clear at all yet.
1: Got it. Stefan, what's your first story this week?
2: The Trump
0: administration shelves the shelf.
2: And what's meant by shelf is the outer continental shelf, which hosts a lot of oil and gas, of course. So in a previous Power episode, we talked about an Alaska court decision, which essentially stopped um, President Trump from uh, opening up large parts of the Outer Continental Shelf of the United States to oil and gas development, particularly in Alaska and nor- the Northern Atlantic region. And uh, as a result of that, now the Interior Department uh, apparently has given up on giving out leases for these areas. And Secretary uh, Bernard said that the decision is going through the courts and will, this will take a while and you know there's no point in... Now trying to give out leases because they might be subject to appeals. Um, environmental organizations were, of course, happy about this, and they demand that uh, these drilling bans in the in the offshore areas uh, should be should be off uh, the table forever, and should be protected areas where no development can ever happen. Um, so. Right now it doesn't look like it's an immediate problem because of the abundant onshore US shale, of course. But I find it very troubling that just by by the stroke of a pen by a president, essentially you can you can, you know, ban drilling activity in these vast areas, and this time in the offshore areas, but could also probably happen to onshore areas. And then there is no real efficient process to roll that ever back. You have to go through a lot of courts. You will have to face a lot of organizations with a lot of money in the courts that will make all kinds of arguments and delay tactics. And so the, the process is the ordeal. You, you can't really defend against that. And uh, so essentially the entire ocean is, can be put off limits. You just need one president in who is willing to do that. With an executive order, and then it's very difficult to roll that back. And so, one question I would ask is um, this seems to be one way street. So, can we see environmental uh, obstructionists being sued in court over these you know, billions and billions of dollars in resources that they blocked? But it appears that we never hear about that. This never happens. It's just a one way street one administration makes a decision and then in the court cases essentially environmental organizations are suing uh, subsequent uh, administrations that want to roll that back but we never see it in the other direction so it seems very one-sided and an uphill battle
1: it, it's interesting to think about if if you think about okay what are the benefits what are the additional benefits of any given energy project and how can those manifest Themselves. Okay. So if, if we know in general that energy empowers people to basically empowers every human capability because it gives us this capability to use machines to do all kinds of work to improve our lives. So if we know that the more cheap and abundant and reliable we can make that, the the more productive we can be in every area of life. And then we know that part of that productivity leads to Unforeseen benefits, particularly life-saving. One example would be life-saving medical innovations or other kinds of innovations that are dramatically positive. It's it's interesting and 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 sad to think about just how much progress has been stopped by people marginally opposing any given energy pro. Uh, Project, you can't see the destruction. It's it's an invisible kind of destruction, but it's very large. And it'd be interesting if somebody just if uh, what uh, whether the law is the right way to do this. But if people opposed environmental groups and said, "Look, you know, I think that my parent died of cancer because you stopped progress in the country this much." I do think about that concretely, particularly if I know somebody who's died of cancer or somebody. Or um, you know, I just think of times when friends of mine have been at risk, and I really do think about God. If this person dies, I I really am going to blame the green movement because they are holding back progress and new ideas, new innovations are such a, a a major consequence of energy abundance and the progress that that brings. One other thought I had in connection to this is how different in a in a bad way. Our attitude toward the ocean today is compared to our attitude toward the frontier in America. If you think about the frontier in America in the past, we had this this general idea that if you can make a piece of land more productive and nobody's doing anything with it, then then that gives you that makes you entitled to own it. There's this idea of mixing your labor with something. And then we just think, oh well, the ocean we don't know how to do too much with that yet. But one thing is that we can get these, you know, these ancient dead plants and get a lot of energy from them. And, you know, we can... Put down these rigs, and then we've talked in past power hours of how, like, a lot of the you know, different marine life forms like these rigs and hang out around them, and and there's all kinds of cool stuff there. But just in general, yeah, this is taking a new area and creating value, and then of course, when when you're done creating value, then you can go do something else. And yeah, there can be issues like um, oil spills, although in the middle of the ocean, that's going to be a lot less of an issue than when you're right on the coast. And even those are are quite rare. And even those are are quite manageable when they happen. But we have all of this. uh, The ocean is just the opposite of the American frontier. And and one wonders, okay, what else could be happening in the ocean if we had an attitude of property rights and development versus an attitude of uh, government ownership of everything, basically ocean socialism? Ocean socialism plus anti-development philosophy. Don, what's your next story?
0: We're now seeing the first sort of detailed uh, climate policy plan from a Democratic presidential hopeful, this one from Beto O'Rourke. And I'd love to summarize it for you, but you really can't summarize it. I mean, it's essentially a laundry list, and it's really interesting in that it's both incredibly detailed and really bizarrely vague in many places. And so to the extent that there is a central idea, it's this commitment to guarantee net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 and to get halfway to that, stamp- halfway to that by 2030. And then there's just this really uh, like thousands and thousands of words uh, of a list of the various things he's going to do, many of them which are put in very vague terms. So um, you know, it kind of breaks down into making uh, fossil fuels more expensive through regulation and maybe through taxing it. But he explicitly will not say whether he's for carbon tax or for cap and trade. Um, but the, uh, a lot of the proposals have to do with kind of vague attempts to make non-carbon energy cheaper. He says he's going to spend $200 billion on New R and D programs that will study technologies that will reduce carbon, and then basically just you know the government buying and paying for a lot of stuff from solar panels to electric car charging stations and you know various things to help mitigate bad weather and um, it I mean it essentially in its approach is sort of what you could think of as the Green New Deal light. that is it extends the timeline. And it doesn't have an explicit commitment to just solar and wind or renewables. In fact, interestingly, he only mentions two forms, or he only mentions two forms of energy, which is fossil fuels, and then one mention of renewables in the whole thing, kind of like as a side uh, issue. And so, part uh, part of um, what is, uh, it, in a certain way, it's more troubling to me than the Green New Deal because it's the same grant of power and government control over the energy economy but with much more like a much more of a lack of clarity about really how are you going to go about achieving this like what restrictions are you going to put in place what handouts are going to go in place and um it's worth mentioning that he does not at all mention nuclear in this whole laundry list of things that he's going to do uh in order to get us to carbon neutral by 2050.
1: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the other candidates come out with. I mean, not interesting in a fun way, um, unfortunately. But so, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll use this occasion to to tell a certain story, which has to do with the, I often get asked some version of how did you become passionate about this issue of, of uh, fossil fuels. And there's one particular development in my thinking that was very important to me and I hope is important to um, other people, which was, and the summary of it was developing the idea of the risks of not using fossil fuels, like having a concept of the risks of not using fossil fuels. Of course, we all have a concept of, of, we're all given the concept of the risks of continuing to use fossil fuels, but there's not much thought about the risks of not continuing to use fossil fuels. And thus, you, you notice with all of the different proposals, people just propose any hypothetical restriction on the continuing use of fossil fuels, and it's just considered a, an unmitigated positive. Like, oh, well, of course, if we're going to mandate these EVs, which supposedly won't come from fossil fuels, or if we mandate solar, or if we mandate wind or if we outlaw uh, fracking, all of these things are just, these are just all positive um, aspirations. And when, before I started studying energy, I definitely, I had a, I had a definite antipathy toward the green movement in general because I knew that a foundational idea that they had is that we shouldn't impact nature, and I knew that impacting nature, transforming nature, that is our means of survival. So I had a a very negative view of the green movement, but at the same time with the issue of fossil fuels, I still had, I did have an idea that, well, there's a big risk involved in, in using these with CO2 emissions. and I didn't have nearly as strong an idea in my mind of, oh, there's a risk of not continuing to use fossil fuels. So I was against the green movement. And so that that made me uh, very skeptical of anything they said and and suspecting that they were exaggerating the risks. But nevertheless, I didn't have this idea of, oh, there is a risk of of not continuing to use fossil fuels. And what really changed my viewpoint was for uh, a project that really had nothing to do with any interest in energy, I, I researched the life and career of John D. Rockefeller for an article that I wrote, it's, and you can read it, it's called Vindicating Capitalism, the true story, the true history of this, or the real history, I think, of the Standard Oil Company. But I was researching Rockefeller and to understand whether Rockefeller was fundamentally a force for good or not, I had to, under because he had this alleged monopoly in the oil industry, I had to understand, well, what was the oil industry like before Rockefeller, so, because Rockefeller started emerging a lot in the late 1860s, early 1870s, and then was was this very dominant player. And then that led me to study, well, how did we start using oil, which really started happening in the U.S. in 1859. And when I started reading this history, two things struck me. And one of them may seem obvious and one of them may not, but I think both are are not obvious and definitely not appreciated. And so the, the first one is the idea that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. So cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. And the way I really saw this was by reading accounts of what Life was like when people didn't have cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, particularly in the case of oil, when they didn't have illumination at night. And I and I would read stories of people in the countryside who didn't have illumination before oil, and I I put myself in their position. I thought, wow, what that would just totally wreck my own uh, desired way to live my life. Particularly, uh, I love ideas. I want to study ideas, and I can't. Uh, that's going to be incredibly hard to do by candlelight. And that would and there's all kinds of other things I enjoy at night. And just my life would be would be so limited. So not only would it be shorter in length, but just every day would be shorter. And that that just struck I never really thought of wow, what what would that be like? And then I, I realized, oh wait, that's that's life for a lot of people today. There are billions of people today who don't have cheap, plentiful, reliable energy for illumination or for anything else. And in the moral case for fossil fuels chapter two. I tell a story about a young woman in the Gambia where they definitely don't have cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and she had a premature baby whom, if they had had cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, particularly in the form of electricity, they could have incubated, and the baby would have uh, almost surely made it to survive. But because they didn't have that kind of energy, then they didn't have an incubator, even, even if they could afford one, there's no reason to, and so the baby died. And just think, wow, that's that's uh, well, that's that's a whole life extinguished, and then that's a whole parent who's or potential parent whose life is just permanently changed in a negative way, and then it all. That's just one example, but it is it's a powerful example of okay, what happens when you have cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, um, or not? So that was this 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 powerful point that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing, and then the other lesson I got from reading about Rockefeller was the idea that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is extremely difficult to produce. And and I first got this idea when I was reading about um, what what we used for illumination before oil, because I had thought of it as, oh, we had whale oil, and then we ran out of whales, and then fortunately we had this other kind of oil. But actually there were many different competitors. There were different kinds of whale oil. There were different kinds of animal oil, different kinds of plant-based oils or alcohols and they all worked in a certain sense they could all in some sense provide light but none of them could do it in a way that was tr- truly cheap plentiful and reliable for a lot of people and thus you had all of these different technologies that worked but they didn't really they didn't matter very much because they weren't they couldn't work cheaply plentifully and reliably and the, the core reason was because the industries producing them hadn't figured out what I would call a resource efficient process. They hadn't figured out a way of producing energy for very low, you know, at a very low price, which means using very few resources. And if you can't figure out how to produce energy, uh, a lot of it that's reliable using very few resources, then most people can't afford it because most people, relatively speaking, don't have a lot of resources at any given time. So I realized, oh, what the oil industry did, it's not just that it figured out a way to produce energy, it's that it figured out a a cheap, plentiful, reliable process, a resource efficient process for producing energy. And then that's what brought this fundamental benefit of energy to the world. So when I had these ideas that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is is fundamental to human flourishing, then cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is extremely difficult to produce. That made me look at the present in a very different way and when i realized oh wow we still use a lot of oil fossil fuels are 80 plus percent of our energy maybe that's maybe there's a good reason for that maybe it's not just maybe it's not a conspiracy maybe it's not just a, a historical accident we didn't think of anything else or something maybe there's something about that form of energy and then the industry that produces it that's that's way better. That's way more resource efficient than the alternatives. And then if we, we weren't allowed to use that energy, then we would have all of these fundamental harms to human life because you know, we'd be deprived of the fundamental benefits of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. And then when I started studying it, it was you know, that started being con, uh, confirmed because I, I had heard, of course, well, some people would say in a very... You know, in a very kind of uh, cavalier way, oh, yeah, well, yeah, of course, we used to need fossil fuels and those were important, but now we know that A, they're causing a catastrophe, and then B, they're rapidly replaceable by alternatives, particularly renewables. But then that, that struck me as okay, there's something off with this because you're not acknowledging when you just say, oh, yeah, we might have needed them in the past. Like, what kind of understatement is that? That's like saying we might have needed medicine in the past, or we might have needed antibiotics and vaccines in the past. Now, these are things that have extended life by decades and made just made the opportunity of our lives so much better. So it, when it's it became a flag to me when different people, particularly experts in the field, would just slough off the role of fossil fuels in our lives to date as, oh, this is something that's just, yeah, maybe that was necessary. Uh, In the past, but oh yeah, I was dirty too. And they would often they would not only um, underestimate the past benefit, but then they would very much focus on the past negative. So that that was one flag. And then I then I saw with these claims that oh well, it's causing an existential threat and it's rapidly replaceable. When I started studying the field and reading different thinkers and and reading back in the literature because I like to know how ideas evolve. I found that many of the same thought leaders who are today telling us that fossil fuels are causing imminent disaster and are rapidly replaceable by alternatives, particularly renewables, I realized, oh, wait, they've been saying that for 30 plus years. And yet, well, so then we have a track record that we can study. And then if you look in those 30 plus years, guess what happened? well, we used a ton of fossil fuels. We kept using fossil fuels. They weren't rapidly replaced by alternatives because they still overwhelmingly have this resource efficiency advantage. They just have this achievement that's very, very hard to replicate. And that's why we keep buying it, buying fossil fuels, even if we say we don't like them. So that happened. And then that was supposed to make life worse. But then that should have made life worse because we had this imminent existential threat, but then life got better and it got better in every respect. So life got longer, life got healthier, you know, we we're supposed to all get sick from pollution. And then even with respect to issues related to climate, we can quantify how dangerous or safe climate is for human beings. And then climate has gotten safer in the last 30 plus years. And then in fact, it's gotten safer in the last hundred plus years and the whole dynamic here is the the dynamic i mentioned at the beginning cheap plentiful reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing including to the livability of our of our climate it's fundamental to everything because of a principle i've talked about before which is that nature doesn't give us the environment we need to flourish we need to transform it and then energy is the amplifier of our transformative capabilities. So you can think of everything in life as nature doesn't give us good enough. It gives us way too many threats, not nearly enough resources. And what having cheap, plentiful, reliable energy does is allows us to transform every area of our life. It allows us to neutralize all kinds of different threats of every kind, and it allows us to create all kinds of resources. Uh, of every kind, and so what the the thought leaders who were supposed to guide us by not recognizing that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing, by not recognizing that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is very difficult to create, um, and then also some other things in terms of them having uh, them having an ideological bias toward believing that it's wrong for us to impact climate in every way so they they have a basically a religious opposition to adding co2 to the atmosphere not not quantifying how big a deal it is for human life but just thinking that well we we shouldn't be changing anything at all and then also they have this religious obsession with renewables because they think of those as natural so they have those biases as well and so that the combination of of what we can call ignorance and biases has led even really smart thought leaders to completely underestimate the past benefits of fossil fuels, overestimate the past risks, and then make horrific recommendations. In the moral case for fossil fuels, I quote some of the thought leaders talking about, and and people are still thought leaders today, talking about, well, we should have radically reduced fossil fuel use in 1980 or even earlier. You know, That's when I was born. And that would have just totally cut off Um, So much progress, including two plus billion people in China and India, dramatically improving their lives. So when we know studying, understanding that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing and that it's very difficult and seeing that our thought leaders have a track record of um, ignoring those, underestimating the benefits of fossil fuels and then overestimating the risks that really made me afraid that, I mean, I basically knew that whatever they're proposing today has got to be way wrong and, and is really scary. It's much scarier than the temperature going up a, a few degrees because they're talking about depriving us of this existential resource of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy mm-hmm. from fossil fuels that is that is essential to life as we know it. There's no life as we know it. Uh, without them and there's there's nothing close that can that can produce the energy we need on the scale that we need. And then there's still billions of people who don't even have it uh, at all. So with that you know, with that context, then hopefully you can see why when I hear somebody say, oh yeah, well, let's just reduce energy. No problem with that. like as long as we as long as we go in some way in in favor of solar or wind, as long as we do something against fossil fuels, we're safe. No, that's the most dangerous thing, the most dangerous thing. It would be like, you know, you, there's not even an exact analogy to food because it's possible to be overfed in a way that it's not possible to be over-energized. But you can just imagine a country where there's barely enough food and then people are saying, well, like, uh, you know, I object to this kind of food and this kind of food and this kind of food and so let's reduce our calories by uh, 50% and then we'll make it up through this other thing that's never been proven to work. Like, you'd be terrified and so you should be terrified of these kinds of, of recommendations. And at the very least, when you're in a conversation about these things, when somebody's talking about the risks of continuing to use fossil fuels, ask them about the risks of not continuing to use fossil fuels.
0: Well, I I want to underscore kind of a point that you brought up throughout that discussion because I I think it's so important uh, the. The issue of that these benefits from fossil fuels are demonstrated in action right like this is not somebody who came up with a study and says hey fossil fuels are going to reduce your energy costs it's that we've had decades and decades and decades of them actually running a civilization and that the the assurances that we're supposed to have that we can ban it are all based on promises not proof and that and and yet Like if you read the media, it's just oh the you know this latest study or this latest claim is treated as on the same level with actual demonstrated ability of fossil fuels. I've noted I've been doing a lot of research into electric vehicles, and it's just astonishing how much the kind of claims of people trying to sell their own electric vehicles are treated as proving the actual capabilities of these as in reality, like there's cases in a number of cities that have bought these electric buses and have found that their claimed ranges are far greater than their actual ranges. And like, you know, that's just for a city bus. If you're doing that with, you know, your sources of electricity, then, well, I mean, you can end up in a situation, uh, you know, like where you're, you're experiencing the lack of energy or the lack of ability to afford energy. And so like, just the 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 bar for overturning something that has a proven track record and is vital to your life should be very very high and it's treated as in effect the complete opposite where you know the case for keeping fossil fuels has to be really really high but you know if you can get somebody from a think tank that has you know even the word renewables are green in its title to say that, no, this is doable and it's affordable, then all right, that's fine. Let's give the government the power to to ban the energy that keeps us alive.
1: One one more thought on that, which is that the one thing to note in terms of the risks of not using fossil fuels are that because, because fossil fuel use is fundamental to our, our civilization, we have... Uh, so many of the resources in our civilization are based on the expectation that we'll continue to be able to use fossil fuels. So as consumers, we have, uh, hopefully I'm not throwing them under the bus, but my sister and brother-in-law, they just bought a car and guess what? It's a fossil fuel car, like a little, little SUV. And people are doing this all the time. I mean, of course, the EVs are also fossil fuel vehicles, but certainly the gasoline powered vehicles are. And so people are and, and you think about how much of an investment a car is, people are spending a lot of resources on these. And then they're being told that, well, in some very near future, you will not be allowed to use these machines, or you should not be allowed to use these machines. So that's that's just consumer goods. But then if you think about what are called capital goods, so those are the those are the goods that industry uses to produce other goods. You think about, okay, well, how many coal plants are there? How many gas plants are there? How many... Oil refineries are there? How many steel plants are there? And, and those are all based on different forms of fossil fuel technology for good reasons. And yet when people talk about these kinds of rapid transitions, that inevitably means that they're talking about destroying the value of a huge portion of the assets in our society. And so even if even if you had a replacement that was exactly as good as fossil fuels for all of these uses. There would still be a huge uh destruction. It would be like if we just said, oh well, AC power, we use AC power now, but let's transition everything to DC power. And let's say you could do it for ultimately the same price, but it wouldn't, it would be a massive price because you'd be destroying all of these assets. So the, the fact that the the destruction of assets is not even acknowledged just shows how little people are thinking about the benefits that we get from fossil fuels. And and how indifferent they are to losing those, even though that's a huge percentage of the assets that we have in our society. And then on top of that, what there, as you indicated, there are, need to be enormous standards of proof before talking about replacing these things. And usually what you have in a market is that the standards of proof are that other people are using them in significant ways with a lot of success. And then you have reasons to believe that that you can so if if let's say we had a free market and say nuclear power was taking off and somebody was using that with success then more and more companies would start to invest in nuclear power and that would be great but it would it would proceed in a beneficial way with people buying new plants as it made sense as they were proven as their existing assets had uh, depreciated in value, they wouldn't do these kinds of crash programs where they're destroying all of this existing asset value and then calling for it to be replaced with all of these extremely speculative things. And then on top of that, calling for the entity of replacement not to be the private judgment of companies, but to be Beto O'Rourke or the equivalent, right? It's, it's basically the government. So you have you have the guaranteed destruction of asset destruction, You have the guaranteed destruction of mandating uh, a woefully inefficient replacement, and then you have the guaranteed destruction of the government uh, implementing it. This is not at all about, let's think carefully about what's good for human flourishing. This is about, we've got an ideological, religious uh, opposition to fossil fuels, this favoritism for renewables, or more, more broadly for this idea of an untouched planet, And consistent with that, we have an ideology that it is important for the government to uh, pursue our goals by controlling more and more aspects of our lives. And then, of course, the individuals like O'Rourke have the convenient conviction that they personally are needed to wield this government control in a wise uh, way. So they personally will often come across as as insincere, uh, and I think they are in a lot of ways, but... But the the framework that we're operating in is one where it's we're encouraging dictators because we're saying that yeah we need to totally change our system, we need to change it in this green way, which obviously private people won't do, and thus we need a wise and powerful dictator to tell us uh, what to do. And the idea is, it uh, you know, all of that is wrong. And if we look at what we actually need, what's actually led to the way of life that we have, which is the best way of life overall that anyone has ever had, is that we've had a lot of freedom and we've had a lot of fossil fuels. Uh, And so we want to keep that freedom, including the freedom to use fossil fuels. Okay, which one of you is next? Uh, I think Stefan, your story is next. That's right. Go for
2: it. Uh, So in an attempt to make the Green New Deal uh, concrete and local, The city government of New York City is trying to implement its own radical version. So a legislative package uh, for this has passed the city council with 45 to 2 votes. And uh, it contains something like banning skyscrapers and hot dogs. So the biggest emission source uh, in New York City is buildings because you need a lot of cooling for the skyscrapers and also a lot of heating in the winter. And uh, so, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio was on the uh, on a TV interview, and he said, "We are going to ban the classic glass and steel skyscrapers, which are incredibly inefficient. And the timetable for this is, by the way, the year 2030. So just similar to the to the deadline of the Green New Deal in Congress. Um, and also, they want to." Um, Source 100 percent of uh, government energy, so that all the government, that the, all the energy that the government uses in New York City, uh, within five years from only renewable power, uh, power sources, or not power sources but renewable sources. So I, I think that's expensive to impossible, but that's the plan. And then only five years. Five years. And in a different story, they also they're also banning processed meat. Uh, that's where the hot dog. The uh, story comes from uh, in the city menu. So in um, you know hospitals and public places that are owned by the city, they would uh, uh, get the processed meat off the table because that is uh, supposedly uh, very climate damaging because of the uh, methane and CO2 emissions involved in that. Um, so just to give an opposition voice to to see whether there's uh, a real fighting back in in new york city on this uh there's a real estate board of new york and they are saying to this in in their statement three years from now when a new city council is seated the press releases issued this week cheering the council's quote-unquote bold action will be long forgotten and the hard truths will settle in with so many exemptions and carve outs we will be confronted with the fact that our city is off track from meeting its ambitious 40% carbon reduction goal by 2030. So the opposition to that, the strongest opposition to that, is not that, okay, this is a bad plan, or we don't uh, think these climate goals are realistic or, or whatever. They are saying this is not the right plan because there's too many exemptions, too many people get off the hook and don't have to implement it. And uh, I also find this a conflicting message from the environmentalist perspective, because on one hand, we are told that, you know, big mega cities where, you know, as many people as possible should be crammed into the electric uh, city buses and housing units, you know, very, very uh, low square foot. Uh, measure of, of living space and so on. that's very efficient and therefore good for the planet and at the same time we now learn oh New York City is a- actually not really sustainable and not uh, good for the planet in in terms of this green ideal of uh, you know using as little resources as possible so I, I find this uh, a conflicting message so it, it seems to be that you are already checkmate as soon as you breathe air and live as a human being you need to be either super poor primitive stone age culture or you're hurting the planet and uh, you know being over the carrying capacity.
1: Yeah, I mean just just that there's a story that we're going to ban skyscrapers in New York. Yeah. You know that that's that that's a story in that that people are so eagerly embracing the most dictatorial interpretations possible. Of the idea of reducing CO two emissions, because I've I've thought a lot about, particularly in connection with the new moral case for fossil fuels book, which will be out at uh, at some point. But buy the original moralcaseforfossilfuels.com dot com or get it at Amazon. That that's still very relevant, and the, the new one won't be out for a, a little while. So I just lost my train of thought uh, promoting. So I, I should have lost or talking about oh yeah the the dictatorial nature of these kinds of proposals. Because I've been thinking about okay what what. What would you actually do to the extent that this is a problem? What you would do is you'd look for, okay, what are actually high leverage things that can be done? Things such as developing nuclear power, cost-effective alternatives more broadly, uh, relatively affordable ways of capturing CO2. That would be a huge one. Potentially geoengineering getting better at different forms of climate mastery so that you're able to deal with more kinds of climate related issues as and when they come up those are the kinds of things you would want to focus on but if if you're focused on them from a human flourishing perspective you're focused on these on reducing co2 in the context of you want human beings to live long lives and to enjoy them so what you don't want to do is you don't want to be restricting freedom left and right you don't want to be depriving people of their preferences all the time you want to figure out okay what are the actual big levers and let's move toward that but you notice that that the way that it's actually conducted is just looking for totalitarian control whether government or, or even just through these private little rituals, like buying a certain car, or you know, sorting your trash a certain way. There's just this focus on how can we control every aspect of people's lives to be environmentally friendly or climate friendly. And so, this this is really just a torture uh, torture session that people get put through where they're to the extent that they they're trying to do anything good by the standard of reducing emissions, because they're just being told left and right, oh, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And then any any freedom is is at stake because we're taught that, oh, well, everything's interconnected. And so you're not free. You can't be free because you emit CO2 emissions. And Versus from a human flourishing perspective, you realize, okay, well, CO2 emissions, that's just one at most, that's one part of the human flourishing equation. And so we would want to reduce that, but we would want to reduce that in a way that's consistent with people living and enjoying their lives and not micromanaging their lives in a way that's misery inducing and actually doesn't accomplish anything in terms of, of reducing CO2. So when when I would just encourage people, do not, you should be really rebellious when people act like they get to dictate your life because of this particular concern. Now, if they have this particular concern, they have to find a cost-effective way of dealing with it, and then maybe they could reasonably ask you to do that, but they cannot ask you to sacrifice your life in the name of these things that won't even reduce CO2 emissions. Don, what's your next story?
0: There's uh, bills both in Pennsylvania uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio that are intended to prop up nuclear power plants that are tr- that are facing economic troubles and could close down. And it's, so there's a whole debate going on. Some people are worried that they're too expensive. Environmentalists are concerned that keeping nuclear open heads leads us in the wrong direction rather than the right direction, which is shutting them down, shutting fossil fuels down and having solar and wind. And, um, basically what's at stake here in the short term is that there's four nuclear plants that are slated for early retirement in these two states in the near future if they don't receive these uh bailout subsidies and similar measures were already enacted in illinois new york and new jersey and uh, one of the interesting dynamics is precisely that you have it's the environmentalists who are opposed to these and it's uh in in Ohio's case, the Republican governor, Mike DeWine is saying that, look, if we're going to have any chance of meeting our, you know, low and no carbon electricity goals, like nuclear provides 90% of our zero carbon electricity. And so, you know, there's no way that we're going to come close if we don't save nuclear. And I mean, as a rule, I'm opposed to subsidies, but I'm, to the extent I could be sympathetic, I'm I'm sympathetic to the extent that the whole context here is that you've had an industry that's basically been destroyed by regulation, both anti-nuclear regulation, but in particular, uh, wind and solar favoritism that um, for various reasons is particularly hits hard, reliable baseload power that can't, uh, that cannot adjust to the um, ups and downs of, intermittent energy and so i mean in a minimum uh i i'd be willing to at least entertain an argument that said well we're going to temporarily keep these nuclear plants alive because once you shut them down i mean that's that's the end of it and but it has to come with regulatory reforms that stop artificially punishing nuclear i'm curious what your evaluation is alex
1: yeah i have i have similar thoughts stefan didn't you do some work on this recently. Did you do an interview on this this morning? I know we had talked about that.
2: An interview? No.
1: Oh, I thought we had talked about it. Well, that's kind of internal uh, (laughs) stuff anyway, but I I thought that there was some radio interview that uh, you might've done, but you you wrote out some answers on this recently,
2: right? Yeah, so one interesting part of this uh, bailout business for both nuclear and, and coal power plants is that the necessity or the apparent necessity from a policy standpoint, stems from the fact that solar and wind as intermittent renewable power sources have uh, received so much favorable treatment. And so when they enter the uh, power grid and are given priority, they are essentially uh, sort of destroying the business model of baseload power plants, which are mostly coal and nuclear. And uh, so they are built to essentially uh, you know, produce a constant level of power at a very high and efficient level, and then they can produce very cheap electricity. But when renewable inter- uh, intermittent renewables enter the power grid and uh, they are introducing some volatility in the generation of electric power, then Nuclear power plants and coal power plants can't just do that what they are built for, and they have to adapt to that. And um, one of the problems is uh, then that they are running at an efficient level, inefficient level, or that, for example, maybe at, at noon when they would have prime time to you know uh, make money with cheap base load power, they are not able to do that and not recover their the capital expenses, and then. Of course the renewable advocates would say hey look they are you know being beaten by renewable power sources on the free market but it's it's not a free market right so they are they have been built to fill a certain role and that is now sort of getting destroyed by the intermittent energy sources and the inter- intermittent energy sources never have to produce reliable energy you know when the sun goes down and solar doesn't produce anything, it's never punished for that. It's it's not punished for not producing reliable energy. And But the the baseload power plants, like nuclear power plants, are being punished for not being able to do what they haven't been designed to do, uh, and which is only necessary because solar and wind enter the power grid. So that's a, that's a very very sort of unfair, rigged market from regulation to start with, and then you can't argue, oh, this is a market outcome. It's not.
1: Yeah, I I think I'm just – so we've got this phenomenon of the government in various forms runs a lot of the electrical system, and I'm just generally very worried about anything that's compromising the reliability of that system, particularly just because there's this obsession with these using these unreliable fuels. And then those are also totally screwing up the prices that people are paying. So yeah, I I wouldn't use the kind of when when you're dealing with proven forms of power that we know can produce power very cheaply. uh, You know, I'm very, I'm I'm sympathetic to things that are keeping them open. And I I, I think the key is to, to, to move toward policies where, you you know you have proper policies toward the unreliable fuels where they have to meet certain standards of uh, of reliability, otherwise they are severely penalized or not allowed on because just in terms of just the basic logic, it just doesn't make any sense that oh nuclear power plants are suddenly becoming really expensive given that those are plants where there's a lot of up, Upfront investment, uh, but then it's very, very low fuel cost over time. So to shut those down, there's probably something off in the way that you are running your grid. Okay, Stefan, do you have a quick final story today?
2: Yeah, I'll try to make it quick. So California politicians uh, are blaming the industry, the oil and gas industry, or rather the oil and refining industry. for high gasoline prices in the state of california and they're alleging a conspiracy behind the price hike so california uh, governor gavin newsom uh is demanding an investigation of the state's currently high gasoline prices which is around four dollars per gallon of regular gasoline compared to 2.5 dollars per gallon in places like alabama and louisiana And Newsom alleges an, quote-unquote, inappropriate industry practices case here uh, for, quote-unquote, unaccounted for price differentials. So he compares, you know, what is uh, the average California paying and what is the average uh, Alabama citizen paying for gasoline? And then we have higher taxes and so on and certain infrastructure. And then there's a price differential that we can't explain that's what a what a study uh, found for the for the price differences among states but there's a, a couple of things that can explain that so first of all some refining capacity uh, recently in california has uh, experienced shutdowns from various problems which of course can happen but this time it's several refiners at once which uh, of course uh, Makes a supply bottleneck for the gasoline fuel, and there's also a trend of uh, declining uh, domestic oil production in the state of California, which has chosen for political reasons to not opt into the shale gas, re- uh, shale gas and oil revolution. And uh, there's also California is notorious for its red tape and and uh, regulations. In, in particular against fossil fuels. So they are making it difficult for, you know, oil developers or refiners or transporters and so on. And they are burying them in red tape and creating these costly regulations. And then they argue, okay, so where are our, you know, smaller competition producers? Why are they not entering the market? Why is there a price differential, right? So it, it makes no sense. You can't, just uh, make it very expensive for smaller refiners or smaller retailers to enter the market or to, to operate in the market and then blame, you know, high, high price levels for gasoline on the industry. There's no conspiracy. It's just, it's policy. It's decades-long policy by Californians. But of course, the politicians need some scapegoat. So, you know, I'm personally surprised that the prices in California are as low as they are, you know. If I would invest in California's fossil fuel industry, I would demand a, a really big additional margin on my on my profit or profit margin because of the high risk. Because I don't know whether Governor Newsom and and some of the the state assembly or the state senate will be, uh, you know, destroying my capital at five years down the road.
1: Yeah, we could we should do a little bit more research into some of the specifics just cause i think that there's a there's a real opportunity to connect with american drivers and particularly california drivers and talk to them about how much they're getting screwed by these policies and they're being asked to make these sacrifices that accomplish nothing except increasing the the status uh, of of other people so yeah. The, 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 and I get asked this sometimes by, I, I ride a lot of Uber and uh, I get asked this by different Uber drivers. Now, according to Elon Musk, and I really hope he's right, you know, next year he's going to have a fleet of robo taxis. That would be an interesting power hour discussion topic is just to talk about that because he's, uh, I'm, I'm going to ramble about this for a second. I'm super interested. I've become probably too interested in the Tesla investor story uh, and I got interested in this about a year ago because musk is, is such a fascinating hybrid no pun intended uh, of different qualities. And you know, one thing is he's just clearly has this engineering brilliance and he's got a really I like a lot of his his methods of thinking, but then he's totally got this whole philosophy of sustainability and in particular we should be using solar. And he doesn't in any way meaningful support nuclear and his he, he has this dogma that okay, well, we need to use batteries for everything. And so what what's been interesting is that when i've just been following the debate over what's going to happen with the company the thing that i'm i should have said this publicly before i might have written it down privately but you know my my concern about it was going to be that that people are people are a lot of people are buying tesla for different kinds teslas for different kinds of status reasons what happens when that cachet diminishes. It'll diminish for some reason. And then, of course, there was the upper, the chance of the tax credit expiring. But just in general, people buy cars, they have a lot of status reason, reasons involved. One thing that was interesting about the case for Tesla was that people were acting like, oh, Tesla is just by far the best car based on the merits. And like even if it is the absolute best car, like if the Model S is the absolute best car uh, for people who have a certain amount of money, which I don't even think that's, that's true in many cases, but, uh, it's definitely not the best car for most people. And so what, 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 it's interesting that there's a sort of Kool-Aid drinking where people are acting like, oh, well, objectively, of course, Tesla is the best car. And part of being the best car is is having a battery in you. And no, for actually, for most people, it's not the best car at all. And even a lot of people bought it and it wasn't actually the best car for them. They spent a lot more money than they'd intended, maybe. But there was a certain coolness buying a Tesla. But now, you know, you watch the Avengers movie and you see an e-tron or if you have that kind of electric prestige, you see that or maybe even... That prestige is lost, and then you're dealing with the fact that these battery cars are still much more expensive than uh, than gasoline cars. So it just be it's been interesting in the last quarter to see oh Tesla's demand you know demand fell off. There was this idea well demand would increase exponentially. And so it it seems like there's been in part this this collapse of demand partially maybe because the status has somewhat worn off. Uh, that's probably a lot of it because they've they've been decreasing. The price is quite a bit, which, of course, kills uh, their margins. But at the same time, what's exciting about Tesla is so the battery stuff doesn't excite me very much, although that that could be cool if it gets to the right price. But what's really exciting is automation because I. Listeners might know I don't even drive anymore. I just ride Uber. And if you could have automation, that would ultimately mean safer vehicles. And it would certainly be much, much cheaper if you didn't have to pay a human uh, to drive it. Plus, they'd be totally quiet and no chit-chat or anything like that. So I could really get a lot of work done. So the the fact that Musk is talking about robo-taxis next year and he claims to have this huge advantage in AI he has this tendency toward overstatement, but at the same time, he's got a lot of engineering knowledge. So I really hope that he's right there. And then, you know, if he can do that, and then, then they should really hire us to help them with the regulatory stuff and the messaging around that. That would be really fun to help them uh, do something really good, not this kind of sustainable uh, mumbo jumbo, but the actual the actual benefit of liberating human beings from... Any driving they don't want to do, and then liberating all kinds of productive and enjoyment uh, abilities. So, if anyone has any fascinating insights about to what extent the robo taxi thing can happen soon, let us know. Okay, that is it for today. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email our point person, whom I have appointed as Don. So, Don Watkins is Don at industrialprogress.net. Also, If you have any interest in a speech by me or Don or anyone else on our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at all different price points, email Don at Don at industrialprogress.net. And if you are interested in help with messaging, if you have an organization that has a lot of high stakes messaging projects and you'd like uh, to possibly be a client of ours uh, later this year when we free up, let Don know as well. Let's see. Anything else, subscribe to the newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. And if you subscribe soon, then you'll, you'll get our weekly newsletter, and then you'll also get our Energy Clarity email course, which a lot of people like a lot. Okay? Hope everyone enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.